Where's Sam, your father? The plot thickens. All this time, Sam has been telling me he loves me. And now he's announced that he's engaged, so he's gone home to get married, and I'm never gonna see him again. Perdona! August 4th. What a night. <laughs> Bill rented a motorboat, and I took him over to the little island. Bill! Sophie, wait! Hang on! No, I'm still obsessed with Sam. Bill's so wild. He's such a funny guy. One thing led to another. And dot, dot, dot! <laughs> August 11th, Harry turned up out of the blue. So I said I'd show him the island. He's so sweet and understanding, I couldn't help it. And dot, dot, dot! <laughs> oh my god! Here come the bridesmaids. Dot, dot! Look at you. You sound like you're having fun already. Oh, we are. <laughs> I used to have fun. Oh, we know. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 230, Mamma Mia. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a regular returning listener, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are just a huge fan of ABBA, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. I am, as always, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of the absolutely joyous and wonderful Mamma Mia. And that is going to basically tell you everything that I think about that movie in just one sentence, because I love Mamma Mia. Just before we jump into Mamma Mia, as always, I just want to say so much love and huge thanks to all of you listeners listening to this podcast, but the people who've listened to the most recent episodes especially, because in October, I decided I wanted to focus on some horror. And so the most recent episodes were very horror-based, so... Hellraiser and From Dusk Till Dawn, the other movies that I did in October too. So we also did an episode on Wishmaster and Poltergeist. And all of those movies have just got such fascinating histories and legacies. And I am a film history podcast. That is what I do. I research heavy and I look into the making of all of these wonderful, individual, brilliant movies. And all of those movies were just so fascinating to look into. And probably Poltergeist might have been my favourite because I think the history and legacy of Poltergeist is so incredibly special. But they are all such fun, amazing movies. So if you've not seen them recently or you've not seen them at all, then it is still October. Well, as of recording this episode, it is anyway. When this episode comes out, it'll probably be November. But there's always a good time to watch a little bit of horror, especially when it's fun horror campy horror, vampire horror, ghost horror, and so do masochistic horror. Hopefully, a little something for everyone. It's really difficult to segue from a horror movie, like From Just Till Dawn, 
into something that is just so bright and colourful and smile-inducing as Mamma Mia. But, you know, there are some people out there who, for them, this would be their own particular brand of horror. But maybe they just don't like joy because that is all this movie gives you. I find Mamma Mia so incredibly special for so many reasons. Mostly because it blazed a trail for female-led, female-fronted and female-focused storytelling. It has many similarities to Barbie in that respect, except being as critically acclaimed as Barbie. And at the time, no one thought Mamma Mia would become a big hit, but its fan base was passionate and it examines important topics like how the movie represents female friendship, how it symbolises maternal and paternal identity, how it emphasises an older female lead, and how it functions as a queer text, jukebox musical, and a work of female authorship. My, my, how can you resist that? Here's the trailer for Mamma Mia. Every girl has a dream. I want the perfect wedding, and I want my father to give me away. Look at my baby, your whole life ahead of Every family... I read Mom's diary. ...has a secret. And I have three possible fathers. Oh. My. God. Every wedding... Which one did you invite? ...has a few surprises. You always knew how to make an entrance. There were three guys around the same time. <laughs> you shady lady. The last time I saw your mother, she said she never wanted to see me again. So who is your dad? I don't know. It's very Greek. This July. Somebody up there has got it in for me. I bet it's my mother. Take a trip down the aisle. Is your father here? You tell me. You'll never forget. Sophie! Hiya. Your father! What? <laughs> Typical. You wait 20 years for a dad and then three come along at once. Universal Pictures presents... I've got three dads coming to my wedding, and I have to tell two of them their surplus, only which two. Are you getting any? What do you mean? slept with hundreds of men. Watch that scene. I haven't slept with hundreds of men. Mamma Mia. You sound like you have fun already. Oh, we are. I used to have fun. Oh, we know. <laughs> On the Greek island of Kalakiri, the rustic resort hotel Villa Donna is owned and operated by single mother Donna Sheridan. Donna's 20-year-old daughter Sophie is planning to marry her boyfriend Sky, and Sophie has invited three more people to the wedding. Architect Sam Carmichael, banker Harry Bright and sailor Bill Anderson, none of whom Donna has seen in over 20 years. Unbeknownst to Donna, Sophie secretly read her 20-year-old diary, 
and knows that the three were men involved in her mother's life when she was conceived. She realises one of them must be the father. She wants to walk her down the aisle and give her away and believes that after she spends time with them, she will know for certain which one is her father. When Donna sees the three men for the first time in over 20 years, she's filled with emotion and confusion. As each man realises he must be Sophie's biological father, each wishes to give her away. And through the power of various ABBA songs, Sophie begins to realise that her family is complete as it is. Let's run through the terrific cast for this movie. We have Meryl Streep as Donna Sheridan, Pierce Brosnan as Sam Carmichael, Colin Firth as Harry Bright, Stellan Skarsgård as Bill Anderson, Julie Walters as Rosie Mulligan, Christine Baranski as Tanya Chesham Lee, Dominic Cooper as Sky Barand, and Amanda Seyfried as Sophie Sheridan. Mamma Mia has a screenplay by Katherine Johnson. It's based on Mamma Mia by Katherine Johnson and was directed by Felida Lloyd. And in that summer, two movies faced off. One, a dark, violent and serious Christopher Nolan directed picture. The other, a light, bright, female-led and focused comedy. But this isn't 2023, this is 2008. And while this year Barbie proved that stories by women, about women and for women equal big box office returns and glowing critical reviews, in 2008, it all happened first. And while in 2008, The Dark Knight made all the money, money, money and prevailed as the biggest movie of the year, the fifth biggest movie of that year was Mamma Mia, a hit jukebox musical that no one saw coming. And Mamma Mia's story starts with Judy Kramer. She started her career in theatre in 1982 when she worked as Tim Rice's production assistant. He was working with Benny Anderson and Bjorn Orbeus on a new musical at the time called Chess. A longtime fan of ABBA, Kramer eventually joined the show as executive producer. Thinking that the songs of ABBA told the story, she wanted to pitch to Anderson and Orbeus a TV special that was loosely based around their songs. Benny and Bjorn, though, saw ABBA as gone and forgotten. After riding their highs in the 70s, the band had broken up in December 1982, and by the MTV era of the early 80s, brightly coloured spandex was out, disco was dead, and people weren't really reminiscing about the music of ABBA anymore. Their Eurovision win in 1974 had been and gone, and all of the band's members had moved on. By the early 90s, though, things started to change for ABBA. In 1992, Polydor acquired Polar Music, obtained the rights to ABBA's back catalogue and released ABBA Gold, a 19-song collection of ABBA's greatest hits, which became an immediate bestseller, selling 30 million copies worldwide and becoming one of the biggest-selling albums of all time, rarely leaving the album charts since its original release, not to mention the multiple re-releases. Also, in 1992, British pop group Erasure went to number one in the UK singles charts with an EP called ABBA-esque, containing electropop covers of Lay All Your Love On Me, SOS, Take A Chance On Me and Voulez Vous. Then, in 1994, a little Australian comedy drama movie called Muriel's Wedding became a sleeper hit after Anderson and Ulvaeus allowed the songs Dancing Queen, Waterloo and I Do, I Do, I Do, I Do to be included on the soundtrack, as the character of Muriel is a huge ABBA fan. Also, in 1994, another Australian comedy, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, featured Mamma Mia as part of its soundtrack, both movies achieving cult classic status. The LGBT community has long been cited by Bjorn Ulvaeus as being a key part in the return of ABBA 
to the mainstream world of music. So in 1995, after all of this, Judy Kramer went back to Benny and Bjorn about the potential ABBA project, which would become a musical centered around the music of ABBA. Writer Katherine Johnson's agent contacted her about meeting Judy Kramer, and unlike Kramer, Johnson wasn't a huge ABBA fan, but had the idea of a jukebox musical containing the songs of ABBA focusing on generational families, because ABBA's songs matured as the group did. They had youthful, exuberant songs about falling in love, as well as ones about falling out of love, as the members of the band had done. Johnson was a single mother and conceived the idea of a single mother and daughter, but they had no hook. That was until Johnson, just about to catch her train home, suggested to Kramer, what if the daughter is getting married, but she doesn't know who her father is, and there are three possible dads. Benny and Bjorn were on board with the idea immediately, and while Johnson wrote, Kramer looked for investors and a director, and while you wouldn't immediately think of Fanida Lloyd for a jukebox musical, she originally thought the stakes were too high when she was approached by Kramer, but the opera director clicked with both Kramer and Johnson, and the three women became a powerhouse production team. The original working title for the musical was Summer Night City, but the city became an island, and then specifically a Greek island, so the title was changed to Mamma Mia, despite that being Italian and not Greek. But it still kind of makes sense. Buena Sarah, Mrs. Campbell, a 1968 American comedy film directed by Melvin Frank and starring Gina Nonabrigida, has long been speculated as the inspiration for Mamma Mia, having a similar plot with a young woman who finds out she has three potential fathers. However, Catherine Johnson has denied any such connection. So when you have the songs in place, it's a case of working backwards, going through ABBA's extensive back catalogue and finding songs that could work and then building the musical around them. They didn't want to change lyrics, but sometimes the content necessitated it. And on the 23rd of March 1999, Mamma Mia started previews at the Prince Edward Theatre. The company had two weeks to polish the production before theatre critics from around the world descended on the West End on the 6th of April, the musical's projected opening night. And Mamma Mia became a hit right away. While some critics may have found an ABBA musical objectionable, audiences were clearly having a blast. Hours before curtain, ticket touts would offer the best seats for hundreds of pounds as lines formed outside the Prince Edward for unclaimed tickets. The musical of Mamma Mia cost £3 million or $4.8 million to produce, and naturally Thea was recouping that budget. Mamma Mia ended up making back its money in 27 weeks and has been running solidly on stage for almost 25 years. Mamma Mia was also the first new musical to open on Broadway following the 9-11 attacks. It debuted on the 18th of October 2001 at the Winter Garden Theatre in New York City, and Mamma Mia was already a highly anticipated hit with $27 million in advance ticket sales, but it became even more important for New York audiences in the wake of 9-11. Judy Kramer was already getting calls from Hollywood studios even before Mamma Mia's Broadway opening, but a film was the last thing on her mind. In fact, she was dead against selling the rights. That didn't mean that people hadn't tried. Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson had been in London when Mamma Mia debuted in March 1999, and they went to a performance and they loved it. Wilson, who is Greek, knew she wanted to make it into a movie, and through her and her husband's production company, Playtone, she and Hanks immediately contacted the Mamma Mia team to inquire about film rights. But despite Hanks and Wilson's interest, Benny, Bjorn, Kramer and Johnson refused, and continued to refuse. 
At the time, it was standard practice in theatres to wait to make a movie until the stage show was beginning to lose its appeal. And then in 2002, Chicago came out. And we forget how big Chicago was. Chicago was huge. It won a ton of awards, including becoming the first musical after 1968's Oliver to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And the result was that the box office of the stage production of Chicago boomed on Broadway. The success of Chicago boosted the prospect of the film adaptation of Mamma Mia, not only breathing a second wind into a stage production, but also coexisting beside it happily. So seven years after Plato first asked for the film rights, a deal was struck with Abbas, Benny Anderson and Bjorn Aldeas, in addition to Little Star, the company headed by Kramer, which included full control to the Mamma Mia team and retaining the core team of Katherine Johnson writing the screenplay and Felida Lloyd directing. Kramer negotiated as such that the participation of the rest of the team was non-negotiable, and that is women supporting women. After Universal Pictures were confirmed as the film's financier and distributor, Kramer and Lloyd went about finding the remaining members of the creative team, and many of these were taken straight from the stage production. Martin Lowe, who directed the orchestra for the musical Eight Shows a Week, was asked by Anderson to be the film's music director, while Anthony Van Last was interested with translating his choreography to the big screen. And this in itself was a rarity, the fact that the production team of the stage show were involved with the film adaptation. Universal wanted the team behind Mamma Mia to submit a list of actors they wanted for the key roles, but they knew who they wanted. They wanted Meryl Streep. She was their only choice after her highest grossing role to date in The Devil Wears Prada. That's episode 90 of this podcast, by the way. But how on earth do you get Meryl Streep? Universal basically said the chances of getting Meryl Streep were slim, so Maybe pick a second or third choice just in case. Nicole Kidman, Olivia Newton-John and Michelle Pfeiffer were all discussed, but they kept coming back to Meryl Streep. Not only because she was Meryl Streep, but also she was a huge fan of the stage musical, having seen it in New York post 9-11 and just loving the experience and the joy it brought to her and to so many people. Streep had even written a letter to the Broadway cast expressing her love for the show, a letter that they framed and they never forgot. So they figured Meryl Streep loves this show. She at least needs to know about the casting, right? So they contacted her agent and made an offer. Streep, who was at that point turning down offers for roles every single day, heard from her agent about three new roles. He mentioned the first two very serious, heavy roles. And then the third, oh, and I almost forgot to mention, you're probably going to laugh, but the people from Mamma Mia want you, ha ha ha, I'll let them know it's a pass. Street perked up and said, oh God, no, I want to do that. Street met with Kramer and Lloyd and not only was she in, she was in, in. Drink had already sung and danced on screen in Death Becomes Her, a episode 59 of this podcast, and sang in Postcards from the Edge. And there was a bit of concern she didn't quite have the range for Donna. But when Street managed to sing the entire soundtrack all the way through without a single mistake, they knew they had their Donna. The backup list was quickly discarded. And once Streep was secured, they could build the surrounding cast. And obviously, if you've got Meryl Streep in your movie, more people are going to want to work on your movie. And the second most important role after Donna was that of her 20-year-old daughter, Sophie. She could be a newcomer or an A-lister. She could be from film or theatre. She could be American or British. But she had to be a soprano or a mezzo-soprano. And ideally, she had to look a little like Meryl Streep. 
which ruled out actors like Gemma Arterton, Emily Blunt, Michelle Dockery and Felicity Jones. Natalie Dormer was a contender but was busy filming The Tudors at the time. Some famous names who also auditioned included Amy Adams, Kirsten Dunst, Mandy Moore, Rachel McAdams and Zoe Deschanel. The final two were Amanda Seyfried, who'd broken out in Mean Girls, and Carey Mulligan, who'd been in Pride of Prejudice with Kira Knightley in 2005 and would break through as a lead actress the following year in An Education. Seyfried looked like street and she could sing. She was filming the HBO series Big Love at the time and managed to fit both projects in. While it was mostly agreed that the men of the cast didn't necessarily need to know how to sing or dance, the women did. That's how Christine Baranski and Julie Walters both got the gigs. Dominic Cooper was seen as a bit of a bad boy, and the casting team fought for him over the likes of James McAvoy and Tom Hardy, who were both unavailable. Even Henry Cavill was considered for the role of Sky, but he was busy filming the Tudors. Cooper and Seyfried would end up having their own summer fling during filming. Once Street was on board, it was easy to fill out the rest of the cast with a simple, we have Meryl. Colin Firth, Stan Skarsgård and Pierce Brosnan knew their characters were minor compared to the women. And while Firth was a genuinely good singer, Brosnan has had his detractors over the years. And contrary to popular belief, this movie was not filmed entirely on a Greek island. The majority, including Donna's Hotel and the interiors, were filmed at Pinewood Studios. They imported olive trees from Italy, cypresses, fig trees and orange trees. It became an indoor Mediterranean micro-environment. The shoot would last for 16 weeks and only just over four of those would be on location in Greece. The Pinewood shoot, though, would use authentically sourced Greek items for the set, such as doors, shutters and tiles sourced from Athens. Meanwhile, a Mamma boot camp, aka five weeks of intense rehearsals, began in May 2007 for the dance company and cast. While Street and Brosnan worked on SOS, Baranski would learn the choreography for Dujia Mother No, and then the entire cast would come together to learn Voulez-Vous. The actors had more than 20 musical numbers to learn, and there were also dozens of dancers who would be performing various roles of the Islanders. Shortly after this, the cast convened at AIR Studios outside of London, with Anderson and Norveus overseeing recording sessions of the entire soundtrack. And the whole cast bonded during these sessions. And it was something that the director, Philida Lloyd, encouraged. Streep had a genuine bond with both Christine Baranski and Julie Walters, and as the lead member of the cast in so many ways, Streep having such a blast led to everyone else relaxing and genuinely connecting over martinis and acting exercises. Production started in Pinewood Studios in the summer of 2007. The sets were constructed on the same soundstage that has been used for all the James Bond films since The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, including the ones Brosnan himself had worked on from 1995 to 2002. Any scene without an ocean view was filmed at Pinewood during one of the gloomiest and wettest summers ever recorded in London, even though the filmmakers made the most of their brief stay in Greece in the autumn of 2007. And the Pinewood shoot was mostly fun. Mostly. Voulez-vous was, by all accounts, an absolute nightmare to set up and shoot, but the fun you see on screen very much also developed off-screen as well. Improvisation was encouraged, which included Meryl Streep ripping off Pierce Brosnan's shirt in the Aphrodite's fountain scene. They spent 12 weeks at Pinewood before packing their bags and jumping on a plane to Scopolos, which was very tourist-free, and as the cast had bonded, that bond carried over to Greece. Four and a bit weeks in Greece had to be carefully choreographed. What wasn't was the Money, Money, Money dream sequence, which took place on Benny Anderson's rented boat. 
He was visiting the set with his family and rented a beautiful vintage yacht. Originally conceived as a synchronized swimming Mr. Williams style fantasy, it became three ladies cavorting around this luxury yacht with 30 yards of white polyester fabric wrapped around Meryl Street and gaffer tape to her. And that was the idea of costume designer Anne Roth. And if you've seen Barbie, and not the last time I'm going to reference Barbie on this podcast, the lady Barbie talks to on the bench is costume designer Anne Roth. Double Academy Award winning costume designer Anne Roth, I should say. Roth is 91 years old and still working in Hollywood, has been since 1964, most recently on Noah Baumbach's movie White Noise in 2022, but Roth has worked with Meryl Streep for four decades, starting on Silkwood in 1983. The pair are close friends, and so Roth jumped at the chance to costume Streep in Mamma Mia and thought the entire experience was wonderful. But back to Greece, which set the stage for not only money, 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 but also our last summer where Sophie sings with each of her potential dads and spends the day with them, which is something Johnson changed from the stage musical. Also changed for the musical was the intention of Does Your Mother Know? Originally a song from the male perspective of rebuffing a younger woman, Johnson changed this to be Tanya rebuffing Sky's handsome friend Pepper. The sand was almost impossible to dance on for this number, so concrete was poured onto it. And the TikTok trend for Lay All Your Love On Me had to start somewhere. And it started with a luck-struck Seyfried and Cooper frolicking on a secluded white sandy beach. It was freezing cold though, despite the sun. The blue sky that you see in those scenes was actually changed in post-production. The scenes for Dancing Queen were filmed at Pinewood for the interiors and moved over to Skopelos for the exterior scenes, which featured an open casting call for Greek women to join the scene. 150 Greek women were cast, but they couldn't speak English. So they were taught how to sing and dance Dancing Queen phonetically. They had to shoot it four times. And because all the ladies jumped into the water at the end, they shot eight o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the afternoon so their clothes could dry in between. Although Sophie's wedding takes place in a real chapel atop a rock overlooking the coast, the church of Agios Ioannis Castril, production designer Maria Djerkovic's team constructed a larger chapel at Pinewood and transported it to Greece when the time came to film The Winner Takes It All. The interiors of the chapel were used for filming and it's since become a major tourist attraction, although tourists are often disappointed that it's not as big as it is in the movie. The scene where Street is running up the steps to the chapel after The Winner Takes It All was the hardest to get in the whole movie. Street had to run up hundreds of steps in her wedding outfit and high-heeled shoes, the helicopter was supposed to capture her entire ascent and then over the summit of the cliff, but the wind was too strong and they had to abandon the attempt. Even though the production had gone through 12 weeks of Pinewood and almost five weeks in Greece, the ending of the movie was still a bit of a mystery. In the stage production, Sophie and Skye decide to put off getting married in order to explore the world. A lengthy encore of Dallas and Queen of Waterloo ends the show, with the newlywed Donna and Sam waving goodbye from the dock as Sophie and Skye sail away to the tune of I Have a Dream. But to Kramer and Lloyd, the solution was obvious. They would just stage the encore over the closing credits to replicate that mood on screen. But the grease shoot was over and all of the actors were free to go home. Unless they were willing to stick around for two more days of filming at Pinewood to get this final end credit scene and to perform the song Waterloo. Universal promised extra funding if every actor agreed, and every actor did agree, so they coughed up, and with very little rehearsal time, and Anne Roth working overtime to get the costumes for the finale finished, 
this is the finale scene that we see in the end of the movie. And Universal Pictures agreed to pay for the extra shoot because they were so impressed by the footage that they'd got from set. At the studio, there were critics who continued to doubt the popularity of ABBA outside Europe and the movie's wider appeal beyond women and the LGBTQ community, and many executives considered this to not be a particularly wide core demographic. With production wrapping in October 2007 and a release date in summer 2008, the cast would get together again, in a way, for a lot of ADR work due to the imperfect sound conditions on the set, especially the on-location work in Greece. It was 10-hour days of re-recording of lines, watching the edit and ensuring the words matched the mouse movement perfectly. And of course, Meryl Streep was the consummate professional. When she recorded it live at Pinewood, they used a combination of a small microphone embedded into her ear and a boom directly over her. It's very different from being in a recording studio with a big, expensive microphone. So after filming, Meryl Streep came back into the studio looking at what she was doing on screen and then effortlessly re-recorded it with all of the actions and pauses, altering her voice as necessary. And speaking of consumer professionals, it's time to segue into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And what is the obligatory Keanu reference I hear you say? Well, it is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves, for no reason other than he is genuinely the best of men and deserves to be featured on a podcast every episode. Now, of course, with this being a jukebox musical, musicals, not really anything that Keanu's done. However, what I did notice while I was watching Mamma Mia is obviously we know the cast was having a fantastic time making this movie. Everyone has said as such in the years since making this movie. And there are several occasions where characters do an air guitar. And obviously, if you're going to do an air guitar, then you need to accompany that with an excellent as per Bill and Ted. And so that is the only way that I can really link Keanu Reeves to this movie is by the power of the air guitar. And as I say, this is a jukebox musical and the songs of ABBA are integral to the story. The soundtrack was produced by Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus and also included the use of traditional Greek instruments to keep that traditional Greek feeling in the movie. The soundtrack was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Compilation Soundtrack Album for Motion Picture, Television or Other Visual Media. It did not win, though. But August 2008 saw the soundtrack album peak at number one in the US on the Billboard 200 album chart. It also received a platinum certification from the RIAA. The album outsold the top 10 albums in the UK albums chart and peaked at the top of the official soundtrack albums chart for 15 weeks running, despite not initially being eligible for the official UK album chart. At the beginning of 2008, Universal showed a test version of the movie to its first preview audience in San Diego. And I've talked about test screenings before because sometimes test screenings can make or break a movie. Sometimes a studio will decide to impose a specific change because of the feedback that they get from these test screenings. And so sometimes a lot of value is placed on a test screening. And obviously Universal were heavily invested in making Mamma Mia a success. So they flew some of the primary crew over from the UK. And also Meryl Streep secretly attended this test screening in a Sharon Osbourne wig and shades so as not to be recognised. And everyone waited on bated breath to find out what this randomly selected audience would think about the movie Mamma Mia. And this first test screening was a rousing success. The audience absolutely loved it. 
and it showed Universal the potential power of what they had. They decided not to disguise the fact it was an out-and-out musical, and they also decided to place it up against Warner Brothers' The Dark Knight, the much-awaited sequel to Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. And they knew this was a risk. It meant the chances of opening a number one were slim, but as the complete antithesis to The Dark Knight, it made a lot of sense to pit the two against each other because the chances of an overlapping audience was slim. See also 2023 for Barbie vs. Oppenheimer. But even with all of that, Universal were excited about Mamma Mia, but they were even more excited about their other releases coming out that summer. They had The Incredible Hulk coming out in the summer of 2008 and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army coming out in the summer of 2008. My episode on Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, by the way, is episode 39 of this podcast. But in comparison to Mamma Mia, both of those movies underperformed. And as Barbie and Oppenheimer this year proved counter-programming to be successful, while Barbie prevailed as the quote-unquote financial winner of Barbenheimer, The Dark Knight would eventually trounce Mamma Mia. But while The Dark Knight was a huge critical and financial success, Mamma Mia became a phenomenon all of its own. At the Swedish premiere of Mamma Mia on the 4th of July 2008, Alfred Lingstad and Agnethe Falskog joined Bjorn Ulvaeus and Benny Andersen with the cast at the Rival Theatre in Stockholm. This was the first time all four members of ABBA had been photographed together since 1986. And when Mamma Mia was released on the 18th of July 2008, the same day as The Dark Knight, in that first week, The Dark Knight made $239 million to Mamma Mia's $45 million, but Mamma Mia remained steady in the US box office, eventually grossing $144.1 million domestically in the US and $465.7 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $609.8 million. Not bad for a little movie with a modest $52 million budget. In the UK, Mamma Mia grossed $69.2 million as of the 23rd of January 2009, becoming the 13th highest grossing film of all time at the UK box office. It also became the fastest selling DVD of all time in the UK, selling 1.7 million copies in its first day and also becoming the best-selling DVD in Sweden. Approximately one in four UK households own a copy of Mamma Mia in some format. The movie has also been cinematically re-released several times, including as an incredibly popular sing-along version. So financially, Mamma Mia did exceptionally well. No one expected Mamma Mia to bring in all that money. But critically, critics were unnecessarily harsh on Mamma Mia, shall we say, with some describing it as a drunken karaoke, stating a need to vomit, and stating it was a shallow, hinging on meaningless spectacle. Many praised Street but savaged Brosnan. In fact, much of the critical debate was overly exaggerated in its complete savageness. Anthony Lane in The New Yorker said, quote, The legal definition of torture has been much aired in recent years, and I take Mamma Mia to be a useful contribution to that debate, unquote. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian said, quote, Mamma Mia ties itself in knots trying to shoehorn in every single famous number, and each time the beginning of an abyssal triggered me in a Pavlovian stab of pleasure. Cancelled after a millionth of a second by a backwash of rage, that this soulless panto has done nothing to earn or even understand the good feeling, unquote. Seriously, do these people not know joy? 
At the 62nd BAFTA Awards, Mamma Mia was nominated for Outstanding British Film, Best Film Music and Judy Kramer received a nomination for the Carl Foreman Award for Special Achievement by a British Director, Writer or Producer for their first feature film. It would win none of those, unfortunately. At the 66th Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy and Best Actress Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for Meryl Streep. No wins there either. And it took 10 years for a sequel to Mamma Mia to even come out. And the decision to approve a sequel to Mamma Mia was somewhat of a risk because they needed a concept that would satisfy everyone. Mamma Mia Here We Go Again came out in 2018 and follows Sophie as she gets ready to reopen the Vinadonna in memory of her mother who passed away recently. And this was a creative decision made out of necessity as Streep has an unofficial no sequels rule and while she was involved and helped to get the movie made to a degree, Streep took a step back to allow the younger stars to shine. And this is why the movie functions more as a prequel, going back to Donna's early years in 1979 to witness the formation of the Dynamos, her first encounter with Sophie's three father figures, and also how the single mother arrived in Greece with Lily James cast as the young Donna. It was also a financial hit, bringing in over $400 million globally, in addition to some surprise positive reviews. In fact, it has a higher Rotten Tomato score than its predecessor. A third movie is currently in the process of being worked on, and this was confirmed by Judy Kramer just a few days before this episode was finished. And hopefully we won't have to wait until 2028 to see it. A talent show, Mamma Mia, I Have a Dream, started here in the UK on the 22nd of October 2023 in the search for two unknown performers for the roles Sophie and Skye in a new West End production of Mamma Mia, also being produced by Judy Kramer. Which, as this episode was planned months in advance, is a total coincidence, but I have noticed on social media lots of people talking about Mamma Mia right now, so... I guess that's going to be advantageous for this episode. Here's the thing, Mamma Mia might be dismissed as the sort of cinematic snuff that doesn't mean very much. But I disagree. The music of ABBA is evergreen and Mamma Mia just conjures a level of joy, excitement and escapism that not many other movies can match. If a heartfelt story of family, motherhood, friendship and expectation, yes, it's bright and colourful and occasionally cheesy but you don't need a serious tone to convey a serious message. Yet another thing that Barbie has taught us recently. The women in Mamma Mia are given personality and backstory. They're independent in their own ways. They show strength in their own ways. As a single mother, Donna is the thing that's often vilified in modern media. A young woman who enjoyed herself with several young men, as is her right to do so, and ends up bringing up her child alone without any help. And now that child is grown up and getting married, Despite all of Donna's success, she still feels weakness and fear, especially when it's revealed that the three possible fathers are on the island. While she's been dealing with 20 years of life, these men are the quote-unquote winners who take it all because all they have to do is turn up to a wedding as the potential father. No one wants to see their ex turn up just before your daughter's wedding day, and definitely not three of them. This is a movie that celebrates women, and not only that, the more mature women. Well, the men are given a lot less to do, both in terms of acting and singing. The men are sidelined and objectified over the women, and the female writer and director clearly understand the female gaze. The music may be Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus, but a woman convinced them to get a musical made. A woman wrote that musical. A woman directed that musical. All of these women got this movie made. 
So no wonder the girls and the gays love it. And the critics might have hated it, but so many people loved it, and surely it's worth something for that. I love Mamma Mia. When I watched it for this episode, I was singing, smiling, and laughing along. I was literally having the time of my life in my living room watching this movie. It just cultivates joy. It celebrates womanhood in all its ages and stages, and it shows that when women support women, they become invincible. And maybe that's why so many male critics disliked it. I'm not sure. So I say, thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Who can live without it? I ask in all honesty, what would life be? Without a song or dance, what are we? So I say thank you for the music, for giving it to us. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Mamma Mia. And just by listening, you are supporting this podcast. And I'm so very grateful. But if you do want to help get involved and help this podcast grow, you could tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they are a huge fan of Mamma Mia, as I know my own mother is. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. And you can also find me and follow me on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. So the next episode is going to be a resurrected episode from September that didn't quite make it due to scheduling conflicts and timing issues because it was going to be a really hasty episode and I just didn't have time to do it. But now I have the time to do it. I'm going to be doing a triple bill on the Superman sequels. Superman 2, Superman 3 and Superman 4 The Quest Peace. A similar episode to the recent one that I did on the three Jaws sequels. So they are called Nanorama episodes. They are slightly shorter, filled with kind of more focused tidbits of information. But again, it's going to be on three movies. So it's probably going to be actually a kind of bigger episode. But it also means I need to watch three movies and I need to research three movies for this episode. So I need to give myself a bit of time to do that. But I'm very excited to be talking about the history and legacy of the Christopher Reeve Superman sequels. Obviously, I've already done an episode on Superman the movie, and this is just going to be a lovely addition to that episode. So please join me next for the history and legacy of Superman 2, Superman 3, and Superman 4, The Quest Peace. And just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And that is all you need to do. You don't need to do anything more than that. But if you do want to do more and you want to help this podcast financially, then you can sign up to support the show in a couple of ways. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips and you can give a one-off monetary tip or you can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the wonderful patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me. I am at verbaldiorama at gmail.com. And you can find my website, which is verbaldiorama.com. You can also find my stuff and my work at filmstories.co.uk, including buying copies of the magazine that I have a little column in. And finally... <laughs> Do you want another one? Do you want another one? Yeah, let's give it to you Let's rev it up! Oh.
Bye. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. Right, I am. My, my trans yeah, is no power, power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>